here in Romans chapter 11. Just to recap real quickly, because we'll be leaving Romans chapter 11 soon and move on to the practical portion of the book of Romans, starting in chapter 12. We've seen that Israel was God's chosen nation for a special role of service in the world, to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring us the word of God, to be the the channel through whom the Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've also seen that not every member of this corporate elect body was saved, but all of them were called to be obedient to Jehovah God and to serve him. That's Yahweh. You can see the abbreviation there in your notes. We also know from the very beginning in our introduction, and we've talked about this repeatedly, that Paul was the the author of this epistle, and he was chosen in a very special way by the Lord Jesus Christ to, to call both the Jew, his initial ministry, although Peter was the apostle to the Jews, uh, and then the Gentiles. Paul was set apart in a, in a special way by God for the ministry to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes, uh, salvation comes through faith. That's what he was proclaimed, called to preach. Galatians 1.15, he says that when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. So God had his hand on him right from the start of his life even before. Separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. We're we're called by God's grace. We're called to salvation by God's grace. If we serve in any capacity at all, it's a call that comes through the grace of God. But he was called by his grace, he says, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, among the Gentiles. No one has ever been called in the same manner as Paul by a supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ. His Jewish past was unique. His salvation was unique. His calling was unique. His ministry was unique. And his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ from the the moment that he was saved until the last breath that he took was, was unique. He gave himself entirely to Jesus Christ. Here was a man also that was greatly misunderstood. He was rejected by his countrymen, the Jews. And even, even the Gentiles in some churches turned against him. He told the churches of Galatia, Have I become your enemy because I have told you the truth? And sometimes that's what the truth will do. He was a great theologian. He was the greatest theologian that the Christian church has ever had. And he wanted the readers of this epistle, the people in Rome, to understand that God had not forsaken Israel. They may have concluded that because of what was taking place with the Gentiles coming into the church and the Jewish opposition. But you see what he said in Romans 11:1, 1, has God cast away his people? God forbid. And that's a way of saying perish the thought or don't even entertain the thought. Don't let it enter your mind. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He cited himself as an example. If God had cast away Israel, then why was he saved? And why was God using him in such a dramatic way? So he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. 
They had a special place in the plan of God, and God will not abandon those to whom he has committed himself to. The unconditional covenants that God made with Israel guarantee Israel's future in spite of their their repeated disobedience to God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, he prays a great prayer. It's one of those great prayer chapters of the Bible. So if you want to look at just a few verses there, in Nehemiah chapter 9, I'm starting at verse 26. It talks about all God's goodness and the things he had done. And then in verse 26, it says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee, and cast thy law behind their backs, and slew the prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee. See, God uses preachers to do that. And they wrought great provocations or evils. Therefore thou delivered them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto you, you heard them from heaven, and according to thy manifold mercies, you gave them saviors or deliverers, like in the time of the judges, who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies or in the land of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them again unto the law. So God knew that that was the place of blessing for them when they were obedient to the law. Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not to your commandments, but have sinned against your judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. Remember, Moses says, these words are your life. This law is your life. And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testified against them by the spirit in the prophets or, or through the spirit of the prophets, yet they would not give ear. They would not heed at all. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. So as Nehemiah tells the story of Israel's history, the, the clear pattern emerges. In spite of all of the blessings that they received from God, they were disobedient. And the consequence of their disobedience was that God delivered them into the hand of their enemies. So what happened when they were in those times of oppression? They called out to God for deliverance. And because he is a merciful God, he heard them. He answered them. It says in verse 27. But then once things got better, what did they do? They went back to their old ways. It it was the cycle of sin in Judges that was repeated throughout the history of Israel. Israel sinned. God brought their enemies upon him. They cried out to him. He delivered him. And then they sinned again. On and on it went. Right up to the time of Christ. And Israel still is in rebellion against God. Nationally. Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Even when it's self-destructive. That's the power of sin. But yet, if you look in Nehemiah 9, verse 31, just it stands out to me. It says, Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou did not utterly consume them 
nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. That's the faithfulness of God. Something that I've emphasized in prior messages here. In spite of their sin. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, Thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God. But here's a great verse. For a small moment, that's a small time, have I forsaken you. But with great mercies, I will regather you. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. It's not true. Jeremiah 31, 37. Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. Now, can anyone do that? Can any man do that? No. It's obvious. I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, saith the Lord. But if you can't do that, God's not going to cast off the nation of Israel. He, he is committed to them from the very beginning when he made that covenant with Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them and then the other covenants bringing them into the land and, and promising them a, a future even when everything seemed hopeless to them. A remnant of the Israelites, however, among the unbelievers, did believe in Jesus. And you look in Romans, I'm back in Romans chapter 11. We talked about this even at this present time when Paul was writing this letter. He says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And we saw prior to this in verses 1 and 4 that Paul was a part of that remnant from the tribe of Benjamin. Elijah was a, was a, a part of that remnant. Remember, he thought there was nobody left in Israel after that great victory up on Mount Carmel. And then this woman, this wicked woman Jezebel, comes and says, I'm, I'm going to take your life. And he runs for his life. And, and he wasn't afraid of 400 false prophets on, on, on Mount Carmel, but he's afraid of one woman. And God ministered to him and delivered him. And God reminded him that I have, what, 7,000 in Israel who haven't bowed their knee. You're not alone. You're not alone. Sometimes it may seem like you're alone. But it talks about the remnant, the remnant. Now, you know, the remnant concept is, is, uh, is important in Scripture. And I think Tobiah preached on this a while back, but referred to it at least from John chapter 6. The remnant, where Jesus says, all that the Father hath given me will come to me. And we tend to think that that's, that's everybody. That's people chosen before the foundation of the world. And that's a complete violation of the context of John 6, 7, 8, and 9. Because he's dealing with the sons of Abraham. He's dealing with the Jews who heard the prophets. And he says, you will, they were all taught of God. They heard and they learned of God. And those who received that message from the prophets, the, 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 the remnant came to Jesus. And he says he did not turn them away. Would not turn them away. And that's really the context of all of those verses there, if you look at it very carefully. So there is a remnant among Israelites, among the Jews. But look at verse 7. What then, Israel, and this is the, the majority of the people of national Israel, has not obtained that which it was seeking for, but the election or the remnant among them obtained it. 
and the rest of national Israel, the Jews who rejected the Messiah, were blinded. Now that word blinded, it, it comes from a Hebrew, I think it comes from a root word, poros. Poros. And it, it really means hardened. It, the word it means a stone. They were hardened like a stone. So blinded is actually hardened. And in three other occurrences in the King James Version, it translates that same word blinded in verse 7 as hardened. They were hardened. So then the, the question is this. What were they seeking for that they did not obtain? That's the first part of verse 7. Well, go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 31. Romans 9, 31. This is what they were seeking for that they did not obtain. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, that is what they were seeking, right standing with God, has not attained it. They haven't attained the law of righteousness. Wherefore or why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And then if you go to chapter 10 in the book of Romans, you see where he starts out. It's connected to chapter 11 or chapter 9. There's no chapter divisions in, this, in the scripture, really. Um, Brethren, my heart's prayer desire for Israel is that they might be saved. So he's very burdened for them. I pair them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to the way that God had laid out for them to attain it. Verse 3 is the verse I'm looking at. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. How many people are ignorant of God's righteousness? How many people are ignorant of the fact, and not that necessarily that God is righteous or holy, but that God requires that of us. He requires a righteousness of us, a holiness of us that we do not have. And that... We need that with him. We need the right standing with him. We need to be justified in his sight. How does that come about? It doesn't come about by works. So it says being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. That's the religious crowd. That's, That's people seeking God their way through their works. And consequently... Paul says, in doing that, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Listen, a zeal for God, a passion for God, does not bring salvation. All kind of religions have tremendous passion, right? I mean, look, look, at, look at Islam. Look what's been done in the name of religion down through the centuries. Passion, people passionate about their religion. But a zeal for God does not bring salvation because salvation comes only one way, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not by works. And that's why he says here in Romans eleven six. and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Or otherwise, <coughs> work is no more work or grace. They're mutually exclusive. If you're working for your salvation, then that's something you, you are going to, you're not going to find. But grace is the free gift, the unmerited gift of God. But why did the remnant attain it? Well, the answer was given. Very simple. 
because they sought it by what? Faith, not by works. They exercised faith in God's Messiah. And that's what it said in Romans 9.33. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a a stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be shamed, will not be disappointed. Listen, I can tell you, I've been a Christian a long time. I, as clear as I could remember anything in life, I remember the moment I was saved. I remember the, ve- the very moment when the Spirit of God came upon me and just moved in my heart and just, just showed Christ to me. Not like Paul on the road to Damascus, but quietly in my heart in response to a gospel message that was being preached in a small little Baptist church. I'll never forget it. But God made it clear, and I've never been disappointed in, in God. Never. I, I've had times that I've, you know, like everybody else in our frailty and our humanity, you know, those questions and sometimes doubts enter and we deal with those doubts. But I trust him completely, completely. But we know from just reading these verses here that God always holds men accountable for their rejection of Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I think it's verse 32, but it could be wrong. He always holds men accountable for the rejection of Christ. He always holds men, listen to me, accountable for their unbelief rather than him not choosing them. The blame comes squarely upon them because of their rejection of Christ. And when it says that the rest were blinded, they had the remnant that believed who came to Christ, but the rest were blinded. Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah chapter 6, and he's not the only one, but Isaiah 6, 8 says, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord Lord saying, after he had that tremendous vision of the thrice holy God, saying, whom will, whom will I send and, and who will go for us? And, and then said I, here am I, send me. I mean, have you ever said that to the Lord? You know, I mean, you're no, you're no Elijah and I'm no Elijah. I'd like to have some of what Elijah had for just a little bit, you know, a little while. But uh, I, I, I'm no Elijah. But Elijah made himself available. And that's all God wants any of us to do. All he wants us to do is just to say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Use me. Send me. And he said, go. Okay, here's your mission. Go. And tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Now, I don't know that I'd want this ministry. And make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. And he was, pre- he was prophesying there, predicting what Israel would do to the message, not just of, of Elijah, of just one prophet, but all the prophets. They killed the prophets. Now the blindness that Isaiah predicted, the hardness of heart, was the consequence of their continued sin in spite of the clear witness 
of the, of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to them. So I've said this many times. It, it was a judicial action taken by God in response to repeated unbelief. God is merciful over and over and over again. We see the mercies of God in Scripture. But there is a time, there is a line that you could cross where the mercies of God cease. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You won't, right? You reject Christ, there's no hope for you. How will we escape escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, those immediate circle of Christ's followers, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with different miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So people can reject in spite of great evidence. And they do reject in spite of great evidence. Some people won't even look at the evidence of Scripture. Exodus chapter 34. I want to get to this because we're going to tie this into the passage we read this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But Exodus 34, 29. It says, And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony, that's the law, in his hand, when he came down from the, from the mount, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. He was a recipient of, of, the, of the glory of God. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that whole scene there, on Mount Sinai was terrifying. The mountain was quaking and trembling. And the Israelites were afraid. They didn't want to approach it. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out and, and he came out and spoken to the children of Israel that which was commanded. So what's the purpose of a veil? The purpose of a veil is to conceal something, right? To, to diminish the appearance of something, to hide, to hide it. Moses veiled his, pay, his face so that the people would not see the fading glory of the law, which was already in the plan of God destined to pass away. The law came through Moses. Does that sound familiar? John 1? But what? Grace and truth came what? Through Jesus Christ. You don't want to be under the law. The law is a law of condemnation. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we read this morning. Look at how it describes the law. But verse 7, but if the ministration of death, it brings death because nobody can keep it, right? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Sin is disobedience to the law. So the law is in reality a ministration of death, and the purpose of the law was to serve as a tutor to bring people to Christ so that they could be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. 
But if the ministration of death written and engraved in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. See, it it was there already. It was destined to be fading away. How will not the ministration of the Spirit? So we're comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant ministry of of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Who writes the tablets of the law upon our heart? Under the new covenant. The Lord. It's not tablets of stone. For if the ministration of condemnation, the law, be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. The new covenant far exceeds the old covenant in terms of the grace of God that has been revealed to us. Because it reveals to us the, the beauty of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. All of that was veiled in the Old Testament, right? The, 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 the new was in the old concealed, right? The old is in the new revealed. Verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3. Seeing then that we have such hope, We use great plainness of speech. That's what I like about the Apostle Paul. One of the things, I mean, he he just said what needed to be said, right? And I I get it. We, We can say things and offend people. But Paul, because he had the power of God upon him in such a unique way, and he was called to such a unique ministry, he just he just said things plainly. So he said, we use great plainness of speech and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end to that which is abolished. But notice what it says in, verse, in that verse right there, 13. But their minds were blinded. Blinded, even back then. For until this day, from that day on and until this day, remains the same veil, the blindness untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which is, veil is done away in, in Christ. How could these men, you know, who, who read the Hebrew Scriptures and know them and memorize them, how can they go to Isaiah chapter 53 and not see Jesus? It's perplexing. How could they read all of these prophecies concerning Christ, which were literally fulfilled and not see Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Until this day, there remains that same veil, that same blindness in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Jesus went into the synagogue, and what did he say? He preaches from Isaiah chapter 61, or, and he, it speaks, this is the, this day the scripture is fulfilled in your sight. I'm he. And, the, and they, they missed it. They couldn't see it. But look what it says in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil will be taken away. Now, where the Spirit 
Where the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and I think that's the Holy Spirit of God. So the Jews who rejected Christ had a veil over their eyes spiritually. Their minds were blinded. Now watch. Their blindness is taken away, verse 16, when they turn to Christ. Now in the New American Standard, I read the the, uh, King James, the New American Standard translates verse 16 in 2 Corinthians 3, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil, the darkness is taken away. What is he telling us? Faith comes before sight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and it removes the blindness. It is not sight, then faith. It is not regeneration, spiritual life, before faith. It's faith, regeneration, life, sight. Whenever someone turns to the Lord, the blindness is taken away. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, who's the master of trying to keep people in blindness? Who's the master of trying to hide the glorious light of the gospel from people? 2 Corinthians 4, Satan. Satan is. And that's why we need to get the gospel out. That's why that's our mission. It's a world of darkness. And the only thing that can open people's eyes is the light of the gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit. So go down to verse 8 and back in. We're, we're, we're just reading. According it as, as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should see not, eyes that they should see not, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. That's remarkable, isn't it? Unto this day, the blindness remains. I'm in, I'm in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. So I call this God's sleeping pill. The spirit of slumber. Now listen, that is not a Sunday morning sermon from a dull preacher. Again, that, that could put you to sleep. But Isaiah 29, 10 says, For the Lord hath poured upon you the spirit of deep sleep. This is judicial hardening. This is judicial blindness. For the Lord hath poured upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. That was Israel's history. And and that's what when Jesus came and did the powerful miracles that he did, he was trying to awaken them out of their slumber and out of their sleep. And some awoke and said, nobody can do this except God is with him. Nobody ever spoke like this man. But then you had the antagonists. You had the people who were hungry for their own power and trying to retain their own power who rejected Christ and said, now that's not God working in him. That's Satan working in him. Beelzebub. They rejected him. So then what did Jesus do? And I've said this to you many times. There was a moment, a decisive moment in the ministry of Christ where he stopped speaking plainly and he started speaking in parables because he says, all right, you've rejected me repeatedly. You're blind. Stay in your blindness. 
I'm going to keep you in your blindness. That's exactly what he did. So I put it like this. When a person will not hear, he reaches a point when he cannot hear. If a person will not hear the word of God and repent, he will reach a point inevitably in his life when he cannot hear the word of God and repent. And he's in jeopardy. Great jeopardy at that point. If he's a child of God, God will deal with him. If he's not a child of God, then he will perish without Christ. Amos 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 5. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, so forth, right? Amos 4, 5. O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God, and I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. There were judgments because of their sin. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. That's Amos 4, 6. Yet, in spite of my goodness and then my judgments, you still would not return to me. This is a warning about going too far in sin. God was warning the children of Israel in the 8th century B.C. that they were reaching the point where they were no longer hearing his call and would no longer be able to return. When a person will not hear, he reaches the point when he cannot hear. This is exactly what Amos is saying. So Amos 4, 7, And I also have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and I caused it not to rain upon another city, one was rained upon, and the peace wherein upon it rained not withered. So, two or three cities wandered into to the city to drink water because they didn't have any in their city, but they were not satisfied. So they understood what God was doing, or they should have understood what God was doing in withholding the rain from those certain places. But what does it say again? Yet have you not returned unto me. Saith the Lord, what more can I do? I gave you goodness, and that didn't do anything for you. That just made you more rebellious. So I sent judgment, and that didn't do anything for you. You sinned all the more. You still would not return unto me. That's hardness of heart. That's hardness of heart. So what is God going to do? Bring the hammer down, right? Away with you. Destroy the northern kingdom. Send them into captivity, never to be heard from again for the most part. Take the kingdom of Judah. Send them into Babylonian captivity. They wouldn't hear my prophets, so let them hear people speaking in another language. They wouldn't hear the clear message of my prophets. So I'm going to put them into a country where they won't understand the language, and then they'll know something's wrong. The story is told in 1948 that the waters of Niagara Falls ceased to flow. Did you know that? I mean, you see that beautiful, you know, picture. If you've ever been there, it's great. For 30 long, eerie hours, the water ceased. Niagara Falls dried up. And all the people who were were accustomed to the sound of that river 
we're awakened by that strange, eerie silence. No water thundering over the falls. Niagara had stopped. Who could do such a thing? So you know what the people did? Many of the locals, they ran to their churches to pray. And panic literally filled the air. And this is in the visitor center, much of the story in the visitor center there at Niagara Falls. And later that evening, with the roar that shook the foundations of the earth, a solid wall of water, cresting to a great height, curled down the channel and crashed over the breek of the precipice. I wouldn't want to be walking around the bottom. Niagara was back in business to the immense relief of everyone. So news in those days, no internet, traveled very slowly, right? So it took some time for the explanation to come. High winds had set the ice fields of Lake Erie in motion and millions of tons of ice blocked the source of the river. They lodged at the source of the river. And they blocked the channel completely until a shift in the forces of nature, right? Uh God released it. And the pent-up weight of that water broke through. God's judgment can be just like that. It can be held back for a time, but then it will suddenly fall upon an individual, or listen to me, a nation such as ours. We can sing America the Beautiful all we want. We can say the Pledge of Allegiance all we want, one nation under God. We are not a nation under God. We are a nation who has rejected God. So God's judgment like those waters can be held back for a time, but then it'll suddenly fall. And when it comes, it will come like the mighty current of water that rushed over the the falls when the water broke through that ice. And anything underneath it and in its path will be destroyed. You know, people often say, why is there no America in, in Bible prophecy? Yeah, good question. Why? We're the most powerful nation on the earth now. What happens to us? What happens to us that that we don't really figure prominently in the end game revealed in the scriptures? So I want to close with an illustration of the consequence of rejecting divine blessings. Verse 9, Romans 11. And David said, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Quoting from Psalm 69 which predicted their table becoming a... Or it was actually an imprecatory prayer saying, let their table become a snare and a trap, even as David spoke of his enemies. But, in, but I, want to, I want to read from Psalm 78, verse 12. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. Tremendous miracles. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand up as a heap. That's a credible story. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud. This is the wilderness journey. 
and at night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. I think that's one of the great miracles, providing for a couple million people water in the desert. He brought streams also out of rock, and he caused waters to run down like rivers. But you know what? All that God did for them was not enough. Even their, even their shoes didn't wear out. It says in verse 17 of Psalm 78, and they sinned yet more against him. Catching the pattern? By provoking the Most High in the wilderness, and they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. They were tired of the, the manna. Yet they spoke against God and they said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? We want something more than this, this manna. We want a bountiful table. The root meaning of furnish is to bring something into being with the consequence that its existence is a certainty. Can God bring something into being for us that we'll have all the time with us? Can he, can he furnish a table in the wilderness? Kim's not here, but I can tell you. And I told some of you before. When I, when we, if you go on, to, on Canyon Ministries, if you go on, to, on, the, on the rafting trip down through the Grand Canyon... You know, they provide an, an, an incredible meals. I am not kidding you. Some of the best meals you would ever have. You'd never think it. I mean, you could, for lunch, you can have six or choice of about five or six different sandwiches and breakfast and pancakes and bacon and eggs and sausage. And it's tremendous. And one day, the cooks and the camp help were, were doing their thing and leaving us to do their thing. And then they called us to, to eat. And, and we, we walked up a little bit in the canyon wall, and there was a waterfall coming down. And they said, you just got to just walk through the waterfall. And you walk through the waterfall, and there was these tables filled with food. So you could eat and not get wet. And it's, it's pretty incredible, actually. Think about it. A table in the wilderness. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? What is a table picture? A bountiful supply. God did provide the table in, his, in the wilderness for them. But the blessings became a snare and a trap. Rather than being thankful for, for everything that they had, what did they do? They murmured and they complained and they wanted more and more. We want something better, Lord, than what you've provided. I say this, a blessing of God can become a snare and a trap if you're not careful. If you're not careful, it can become a, a snare and a trap. You know what? Thank God. Thank God for the things he's given us, right? Thank God for this church with all its imperfections. Thank God for a husband who may not be everything you want but he's there for you. And he's caring for the family. And I don't mean not everything you want. You don't take that wrong. I mean, we all have sins. We all have faults. Thank God for a wife. Thank God for a wife who care for her husband and her family and sacrifice. 
Those are tremendous blessings. But if we're not careful, we'll murmur and complain and we'll want more. Verse 10. Let their eyes be hardened, darkened, so that they may not see and bow down their back always. You know what God is saying here? He's speaking about Israel. The blessings became a snare and a trap. They became ungrateful. They made the bed that they slept in by their persistent unbelief. You will make the bed you will have to sleep in. When he talks about the bowing of the back, do you know what that is? That is a picture of servitude and fear. This is what God was was saying here. Philip Keller says, from generation to generation, the Jew has fled from land to land, ever pursued by the vicious curse of anti-Semitism. They have lived in fear. They had become slaves. Think of the Holocaust, all of these things. And you know what? The, t- the worst is yet to come for Israel. Because of their persistent unbelief and rejection of Christ, the time of Jacob's trouble is coming upon Israel. The horror of the great tribulation, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of the Antichrist. And that is a judgment that will come because of their national rejection of Christ but there will be a remnant saved. A great number, even during that time. They're going to cry out. See in this chapter, they're going to call out to to their deliverer to come to Zion to save them. So the fall of Israel is not a fall for good. Completely, forever. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? What does he say again? Is God finished with them? This, is, this means to fall completely, forever. God forbid, emphatic no, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. God brings beauty out of ashes, doesn't he, right? He makes new things. So Paul's emphatic, their fall is temporary. The temporary setting aside of Israel led to the Gentile salvation and blessings. So here's the twofold purpose in the rejection of the nation of Israel for a time, a setting aside for a time. Number one, to facilitate the progress of the gospel among the Gentiles. Paul, Paul said in Acts 13, after they'd rejected him again, he says, Oh, behold, I turn to the Gentiles. Secondly, to provoke Israel to emulation or jealousy by the conversion of the Gentiles. So provoke there means to to desire the salvation they rejected. Phillips paraphrases it this way. Now I ask myself, was this fall of theirs an utter disaster? It was not. For through their failure, the benefit of salvation has passed to the Gentiles with the result that Israel is made to see and feel what it has missed. And when the last Gentile who is to be saved will be saved, God's going to really deal in a marvelous way with the nation of Israel again. So I, I just put this line down here. You can put this up and it's the last slide. Sometimes the only way we know what we have is when it is gone. Right? 
Sometimes that's the only way you will realize what you have is when it's gone, when it's taken from you. And that's the history of Israel. The blessings that they had under, under the, the mercies of God and goodness of God. It was taken from them in many ways and they, and they experienced the wrath of God. And yet even then, God preserved them. So this time is coming for them. No one knows when it will happen, but we're getting closer every day, every day. God is not finished with Israel. And we'll pick that up next week.